Welcome back to the Z-Files. I am Professor Z, and I will be your host for this episode. This podcast is your one-stop shop for all things crime-related. I use my eight years of research and three years as a criminology professor to cram each episode with facts about crime patterns, statistics, criminal behavior, and tips for improving your personal safety. Say goodbye to the fear you think you have about crime, and say hello to your new expertise in the field of criminology. Today's episode is called, There's No Place Like Home. Fact count on this episode is around 50, if you're wondering whether or not these 20 minutes are worth your time. I'll be bringing in content from sociologists and victimologists. Victimology isn't well known, but it's basically criminology's favorite cousin. Victimology is the study of the victims of crime and the psychological effects on them from their experience. From using self-report data, victimologists have delivered fascinating statistics that helped map out offender motives and crime patterns. We will jump right into the property side of index crimes. As a recap from last time, violent crimes on the UCR make up 8.5% of reported criminal offending. Thus, property crime makes up the other 91.5%. First on our list is larceny theft which is merely the academic word for stealing something with an action that isn't considered to be robbery, burglary, or motor vehicle theft. The actual definition is the unlawful taking, carrying, leading, or riding away of property from the possession or constructive possession of another. Larceny theft includes a long list of categories that range from shoplifting to purse snatching to stealing from construction sites, to taking things from a motor vehicle. Now, important note, this action is completed without threatening or injuring a person. If someone was injured or threatened during theft, what would we call it? Robbery, that's right. Larceny theft is usually the topic everyone dozes off in. It's not a flashy crime, It's not disturbingly intriguing. And yet, larceny theft is the number one crime in America. In 2019, reported larceny theft occurred over 5 million times. That equates to over 1,500 larceny thefts per 100,000 people in the United States. Items that were targeted in this crime were usually over $200 in value. Statistically, your odds of suffering larceny theft are the highest out of all the other crimes. I don't say this to strike fear in your heart, because the next thing I will tell you is that the most popular type of larceny theft is 100% avoidable. The main category of larceny theft is taking things out of unlocked cars. What happened in many of these situations is someone was walking along in a parking lot figured they would try a few door handles. If any doors were open, they would look for some treasure. This kind of thing happens in neighborhoods a lot too. People looking for the opportunity to steal something are always going to try car doors. They're probably not as likely to break a car window because that will draw attention and they might not be able to get away with it. But with that said, don't leave valuable items out as bait in your car. But know that simply locking your car will prevent most of your things from being stolen the majority of the time. So since we know that cars are the number one 
and easiest target for people to steal from, use that knowledge to your advantage. The second property crime on our list is burglary. I have dedicated a lot of research time into this crime because some of my family members have experienced break-ins and I wanted to understand what could be done for prevention. Let's gain some context and understand what our most recent crime data tells us about burglary trends in America. In 2019, the U.S. had 1.1 million burglaries. This breaks down to about 340 burglaries for 100,000 people. In total, the combined losses from these burglaries totaled at $3 billion. The average dollar amount lost per incident was around $2,661. The majority of these burglaries happened by forced entry at a residence during the daylight hours. Since the year 2000, burglaries are down 46%. That's due to more affordable home security systems, such as video monitor doorbells and easy-to-install camera systems. Research from sociologists and victimologists prove the connection between these types of home security systems and the decrease in burglary rates. Sociologists were able to interview professional burglars to understand how they make the decision to break into a place. Most of the information I'm going to share with you about these findings comes from a piece called Decision Strategies of Residential Burglars. I've linked it in the episode description if you'd like to check it out. Anyways, these interviews revealed that a burglar's greatest fear is to be seen. Their second greatest fear is to be seen and reported. When they are considering whether a house is a soft or hard target, meaning easy or hard to break in, they follow three main criteria. First, occupancy. If their main fear is to be seen, obviously they do not want anyone to be in the house. They will look for cars in the driveway, listen for noises or voices coming from the house, maybe see if there are kids playing in the yard, whatever. Houses that are shut up with curtains drawn are more likely to send the message that no one is home. Sometimes, they will probe the area by knocking on the door to ask for something just to see if anyone answers. It might also include going to other houses to figure out who's vacationing in the neighborhood. If you've ever seen Home Alone, this would be the part when Harry is pretending to be a police officer and he goes around to warn everyone about break-ins and gathers intel on everyone's holiday travel plans. Hi. Hi. Are you Mr. McAllister? Yeah. The Mr. McAllister who lives here? Yes. Oh, good, because somebody owes me $122.50. like a word with you, sir. Am I under arrest or something? No, 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 no. It's uh, Christmas time. There's always a lot of burglaries around the holidays. So we're just checking the neighborhood to see if everyone's taking the proper precautions. That's all. Oh, yeah. Well, we have uh, automatic timers for our lights, locks for our doors. That's about as well as anybody can do these days, right? In a rare moment, Hollywood portrayed something about crime that was mostly accurate. A new tool for predicting occupancy is social media. Burglars can scour community and neighborhood pages to find individual profiles and look for evidence of posts that betray when someone is traveling. Those pictures that make your social media audience jealous of your travels could be announcements a burglar needs to know if your house is unoccupied. 
Even the celebrities fell prey to this in 2008 and 2009, when a group of seven burglars known as the Bling Ring used public information about celebrities' schedules to know when their house would be empty. They paid attention to things like tour dates or large ceremonies like the Academy Awards, and then hit the selected target when they knew the celebrity would be out. Paris Hilton, Orlando Bloom, Megan Fox, and Lindsay Lohan were among a few of their victims. I travel so much, and I, Sophia told me they came into my house six times. So when I'm traveling, someone is always making sure the house looks perfect, so when I would get back, I wouldn't know. But the last time they came in the sixth time is when they took millions of dollars of jewelry and made it obvious that a lot of things were missing. The second criteria burglars look for is surveillability. Burglars want to know to what extent they will be observed in the act. Things that make it easy for them to be observed and get caught include being in close proximity to a neighbor's house, people being out on the street, the point of entry being highly visible, or a dog barking. Places that are attractive to burglars include those with natural cover or a privacy fence. Houses with privacy fences are considered ideal break-in locations. Why is this? Once a burglar gets behind a privacy fence, all actions are private. They don't have to look natural as they break your door down or pick a lock. They could take a sledgehammer to the back door, and it wouldn't matter with a privacy fence blocking the demolition. In terms of natural cover, it's the same idea. Dense shrubbery or a heavily wooded area is nature's gift to a burglar looking to conceal their act. The third criteria is accessibility. This is mostly what it sounds like. How easy will it be to access and break into this structure? Are there burglar bars? Is there an electric fence? Is the fence climbable? Are there special locks? Or the ultimate, once again, is there a dog? Burglars often choose the least protected sites. Most burglars will bypass a house with a dog. Dogs are a deterrent because they sabotage two of the criteria we went over. First, they remove the ability to be unseen because it is their instinct to be loud when someone is coming near their territory. It doesn't matter if you have a police-trained German Shepherd or a Chihuahua from the local pet store. Dogs make noise when they perceive an intruder. It's more about the attention a dog can attract rather than if they can attack someone. If dogs can make people in a neighborhood look to see where the sound is coming from, a burglar has already failed to stay under the radar. Second, every dog has the capability to bite someone. When a burglar is considering accessibility, they have to factor in whether or not they have the ability and time to navigate a break-in with a dog at their heels or at their throat. Obviously, larger dogs will be more of a threat in this situation, but don't underestimate the power of a smaller dog. So, next time your dog barks at what you think is nothing, maybe press pause on your frustration and consider that this instinct could be protecting your home from a break-in. If you don't have a dog, you can do other things to make your home a hard target. Try not to advertise your electronics with your windows. It can be really tempting to put a computer as close to the window as possible and take advantage of that natural light. I would suggest not doing this kind of thing on your ground floor or near windows that are facing public access. 
This will decrease someone's ability to window shop at your house. If you already have a privacy fence or live amidst natural cover that isn't feasible to remove, make sure your entrances are covered by a bright motion detector spotlight or consider buying some sort of security device like a ring doorbell or a camera that can be mounted on that entrance. Today, the market has a lot of very affordable options. This will not only serve as a deterrent to most burglars, but it will also alert you to any intruders so you can call the authorities for help. If you are leaving town, make sure you don't leave large amounts of cash in your house and put your lights on different timers. If you only have one timer, burglars will be able to figure it out. Things like cars in the driveway or outside the house are also very helpful deterrents, as long as they are locked cars. Victimologists have found a larger number of residential burglaries happen during the daylight hours, whereas more of the non-residential burglaries happen during the nighttime. We also find that more break-ins happen in the spring and the summer. These aren't random patterns. They emerged year after year. It's logical if we stop and think about it. Before someone breaks into a house, they need to look for those three criteria, which are once again, occupancy, surveillability, and accessibility. Burglars will have to observe the place they want to break into for some time if they want to successfully meet their goal of not being seen or caught. This observation process is sometimes called casing a joint in the movies. Casing turns out to be more pleasant in warmer weather than when temperatures are miserably cold. So that explains the seasonal change in this crime. Now, the time of day is explained by the fact that most burglars don't want people to be home when they target a place. Although they might resort to violence to steal something, most household burglars are not hoping for any kind of human interaction. This is different than someone who wants to rob a person at gunpoint. They have chosen that crime because they feel power and control over the person they are robbing. Burglars have different motives. We have more household burglaries during the daytime because that's usually when people will be at work. Workplaces are hit more at night because people are back home. I believe when data from 2020 is published, it will confirm these trends by revealing lower numbers of household break-ins because much of the population was home quarantining and a lot of jobs switched to a remote work-from-home model. I hope I explained all that well, but if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at thezfilespodcast at gmail.com. And I'll be sure to put the email address in the episode description as well. Now we move on to motor vehicle theft, our third property crime. Along with homicide, this crime has the highest reporting rate. The high reporting rate is mostly due to insurance requirements. To qualify for a rental or new car from your insurance, a police report has to be filed about the stolen car. This crime also holds the award for the highest recovery rate of all stolen property. Out of 721,000 vehicles that were stolen in 2019, 56% were recovered. Motor vehicle theft is down by 47% since the year 2000. This is due to things like ignition immobilizers and other anti-theft devices. Some other trends about this crime are that trucks and large SUVs are popular targets. In 2012, the Ford F-250 was the most sought-out car to steal. 
The Escalade was also popular until manufacturers added an anti-theft device to it. I am aware of five motives for this crime. The first category is joyriders. This is a group that wants a car temporarily to have fun. Typically, this category is made up of juvenile delinquents. The next category is known as the traveler. This is a person looking for a convenient car to get them from point A to point B. The third type is known as the felon, or someone who needs a car in the spur of the moment to escape law enforcement. The next group includes people known as parts choppers. Parts choppers want three to five year old common models that might have parts in high demand. And lastly, the shipper. A shipper looks for luxury cars to sell abroad. This one requires a great deal of resources, such as having your own barge and also being able to manage the processes for exporting a car. And that's why it's more rare. To conclude this section about crimes that involve stealing, I have a list of the most commonly stolen items from greatest to least. Money is at the top of the list, followed by jewelry, clothing, furs, motor vehicles, office equipment, larger electronics, firearms, and towards the end of the list, we have livestock. We are nearly out of time, but I can squeeze in our last property crime, which is arson. In 2019, 33,395 known arsons occurred. More than 42% of these involved structures. The average loss for each one of these incidents was $16,371, and 81 people were murdered using fire. Arson is a scary one. The motives for committing arson include crime concealment, excitement, extremism, profit, vandalism, revenge, or heroism. Most of these motives show us that an arsonist is willing to disregard human life and respect for property in order to meet their own emotional needs. This is a crime that is rooted in childhood and does not randomly start as an adult. Generally, children younger than age seven who start fires do so accidentally and innocently. By age eight, the intentions are not the same. Now, some kids between the ages of 8 and 12 can accidentally start a fire out of a curiosity that gets out of hand. However, most kids of these ages who start some form of a destructive fire, such as burning down a shed, lighting a house on fire, lighting animals on fire, things like that. Destructive fires, not a campfire or fireplace. Anyways. Kids of these ages who do those things are usually suffering from a psychosocial conflict. I don't mean these kids are psychos. That term is thrown around without knowing the definition or how to apply it properly. The conflict I am talking about here is one where they are old enough to understand that it is wrong to use fire to destroy things, but they can't contain their urge to be in control of that destruction. Thus. The social norms they have been taught come in conflict with their psychological urges. If you know someone in this age group who enjoys using fire outside of a campfire or fireplace, I suggest directing that child to professional help. It's this age group that is key to detecting someone on the path to becoming a career arsonist. Once arson is committed by someone ages 13 through 18, 
they already have a history of undetected fire starting. We also find that people who have committed serial murder have either dabbled in arson or are very attracted to this action for its damage potential. Someone who wants to commit arson is looking for the strongest tool available to cause harm. It's an addiction to power that can't be stopped by conscience. And on that dark note, we are at the end of our time together. If you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review if your platform allows. Tune in next time to hear all about homicide on the episode, A Time to Kill. We'll talk to you later.